If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out GuardianVets.com now. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. We're going to hit our sponsors here in just a second, then jump into the episode. But before we do, make sure you stick around throughout the end of the interview and check out the show notes for great opportunities for associateships, partnerships, and more. If you're a practice owner, you want to find great people, and you want to list a job opportunity or just looking for certain things that your peers out there that are veterinarians could benefit from, feel free to shoot me an email. Isaiah at veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. I will do my best to get those up at the end of different episodes. There's no charge for that. My role, my job is to connect good people with good people. So with that, we will hit our sponsors and be right into the interview. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Why do most banks always seem to be impersonal, slow to answer questions, or give you the runaround on getting money needed for your dreams? Enter Panacea Financial. Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Whether you're a veterinarian in training, practice owner, or aspire to be one, someday, Panacea Financial is designed specifically for you. It was started by two doctors who were frustrated in working with banks and so started their own to serve their community. With common sense lending guidelines and fast decisioning, they have helped doctors all across the country start, grow, and acquire their dream practice. Looking to buy into a practice, Panacea helps doctors with practice buy-in loans that are funded in a matter of days, not weeks, or months. If you're ready to join the thousands of doctors nationwide who have declared independence from traditional banks, visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to see how they can get you started with your dreams. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC. Have you ever walked into a space and thought, wow, this is beautiful? There's a reason for that. Architecture has this innate ability to impact emotions and perceptions. My friends at Apex Design Build bring beautiful and functional spaces for veterinarians nationwide. Apex is a fourth generation family run company that is fully integrated from the design, architecture, and construction process. They help you mitigate risks, eliminate surprises, save money, save time, and reduce the effort on your project. Check out their amazing work and have access to their square footage calculator to help you plan your expansion or new build. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer and learn more about Apex Design Build. Finding a job or finding a veterinarian shouldn't be a waste of time. Enter an offer first. Paul Diaz and team have created something really special with offer first. Some of my favorite reasons are as follows. Candidates and employers will both have values aligned on the first step, not the last. The sign-up process, quick and simple, no resume required. So if you're looking for a job, but you aren't really sure, it's as easy as scrolling on Zillow for a home. And finally, if you have a great match, it's based on your each unique requirements, not random keywords. 
you want to learn more, listen to episode 179 with Paul Diaz. We cover all of that. The other exclusive great thing that you're going to get from this ad read and from Paul is I convinced him to give an exclusive discount to listeners of this podcast. So for owners, you're getting a 20% discount on both the placement of any candidate, but also access to the platform. Use VSP if you go to offer first or the easiest way is a link in the show notes. So check it out. Associates, those looking for a job, same thing. Use the link in the show notes. Use VSP if you go directly to offer first. But I will donate and Paul will donate to a veterinary nonprofit of your choosing. So each person that signs up gets a vote. Your votes actually count, which is incredible. And so I'll be reaching out. I will handle that. But there's going to be a donation made for any associate or any job seeker that adds on the platform. We want to make sure that not only does the platform help to make sure that you find a better fit, better culture, better role, but it's also doing good in veterinary medicine. Okay, so link in the show notes is going to take you to offer first. It's going to automatically apply that, but also use code VSP if you go to offer first directly. And offer first is changing the game of veterinary recruiting. I want each and every one of you to benefit from it. So check them out today. When I think of a really basic estate plan, the most basic one, I think of primarily three documents, so to speak. So first one being kind of the healthcare one. So who's going to navigate healthcare decisions if you can't? That's an appointment of healthcare representative or a healthcare power of attorney. Usually embedded in that document is a thing called advanced directives. What that basically is, the more specific medical decisions. So think like feeding tube, resuscitation, all those sort of things. That's usually embedded in one document. Sometimes attorneys will bust those up into a couple and neither way is better or wrong. do a financial plan, but even more so from an estate planning or thinking about anything legal related. But I am joined by Jennifer Roselle, and she is a attorney and she is a partner in a practice with her husband and it is the Indiana State and Elder Law. And so with that, Jennifer, thank you for spending some time and we're going to talk all things estate planning and go through that. I was going to say, yeah, for those that don't know you, it's like, this is actually going to be a pretty, I think, enjoyable episode because you also have a, a podcast called Legal Tea. And we were just joking that someone told you a play on words. So you want to share that real quick and we'll jump in? Yeah, it was not intentional. It was, and I can't even say accidental because it wasn't my idea, but it's Legal Tea, T-E-A. The idea kind of spawned from sipping the tea sort of thing. But I had someone reach out and say, hey, is Legal Tea a play on words for legality? And I was like, no, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And right yeah, there, it's perfect. So, for sure. And one thing that I think is awesome that you do is you go through different cases and walk through, like, hey, this big case with, let's use like Prince. I feel like a lot of people will talk about, you know, Prince died without an estate plan and all, all these issues that come from it. But you'll go through and kind of dissect those, which I think is really cool. So, we'll share a link to that for people that want to look at it. But I guess let's start with, when you think about lawyers and attorneys in general, right? People are like, oh, you're an engineer. Oh, you're an attorney. You do all these things. So you focus on estate planning. So what is a day or a week, let's say, because a day might be a hard one, but what does it look like for you working with clients and what kind of conversations do you typically have? 
Yeah. What immediately popped into my brain when you just asked that is, you know, one of my least favorite questions when people ask me what my normal client looks like. While I specialize in estate planning specifically, my clients look very different. They are all different ages. I think of young adults that just want to get some really basic documents in place, maybe because they've had a couple kids now and really see the need to put some guardianship language in their documents up to people in their 90s and hundreds that, you know, I don't see them too much anymore, but like World War II veterans and really all sorts of different types of asset levels and what their estates look like. So while I specialize in that estate planning space, my clients are all very different. I think a lot of people, they hear that word estate and they're like, oh my gosh, she only works with people that have bazillions of dollars. And I don't at all. And actually that's really not even my niche, so to speak. I don't work with people that have bazillions of dollars. I would refer those people out. So my everyday honestly looks like I spend most of my weeks in the conference room. I really don't feel like I'm a lawyer most days. I just get to meet people, hear about their families, hear about their situations, what's going on in their world. That's oftentimes in my world, there's some sort of trigger. People kind of like how you just started with of people don't love to spend time in my conference room talking about estate planning. I try to make it fun. There's always laughter in my conference rooms. It's I try to make it as fun as possible, but most of my week is spent meeting with clients of all different shapes and sizes. Most of the day, I just had a meeting yesterday that the, or maybe it was two days ago that the granddaughter was in the room with her grandparents. And she's like, you really need to get outside. It's so nice out. And I'm like, oh, is it? Cause I haven't been outside all day. So yeah, my whole week, my every day is pretty much spent meeting with clients, prospects, existing clients of all different shapes, sizes, ages, that sort of thing. And having conversations that you would have, right, dealing with families, money, tension, right? It's never super easy. And everyone's like, well, my family is unique or different. And it's like every family has their story or drama or challenges. How do you help people navigate that? And I guess let's focus on, I've never done estate planning, right? So maybe I'm not revising it, but what should I be thinking about if I'm wanting to do an estate plan? I think that we have an initial information sheet that prospects fill out. It really details who they are. It details or asks maybe for details of their family, their beneficiaries, their kids, their assets, Do who's on the assets, ownership, beneficiaries, those sort of things. And an idea that just really popped into my head when you just asked that was, you know, sometimes people are reluctant to fill that form out because they feel like we're asking for so much or, you know, dare I say too much. And estate planning is a really, it should be, uh, the attorney is asking all the right questions, but it should be a very thorough and very private conversation. And if I have a client that fills out that form, that helps me so much to learn about what has spawned them to come in. And that's actually one of the questions on there is what are you looking to do? The answer doesn't have to be perfect. I just kind of need to know what you're looking. And if the answer is, I don't know, Jenny, that's totally fine too. When you get to the part with children and beneficiaries, it asks about, are there any special needs or special concerns I need to know about these people? And then when you get to the asset piece, who do we have listed as beneficiaries? Do we 
right now have our parents and that's probably not appropriate. So less is not more in my world. More is more, I guess is the way to say it. The more information I can have, the better that I can be an attorney for my client. So I think what I would tell people is go in with an open mind and also it's okay if you don't know what you don't know. Most of my clients don't know what they want or that they need. So really just following the process of disclosing information and not having any thoughts that your attorney is secretly judging you on the other side of the table because you have a kid that's estranged or that you have a kid that has maybe some sort of addiction issue or something. To be honest, Isaiah, I mean, when I actually have a client in front of me that I kind of call it my all-American, perfect little Pleasantville family, that when I have no issues, I'm immediately suspicious. I'm like, (laughs) you're not telling me something. It's so uncommon. And so I say that from a place of like, don't feel like you need or maybe that you should hide anything because I can't do my job if you don't really explain what's truly going on. Yeah, I think the way that I would look at that, Instagram shows the best 10% of everyone's life, right? And so there's this portrayal of, hey, happy family. We just had Easter. We're going to go and have our vacation or holidays, all stuff. It's like, well, then there's reality, right? And everyone doesn't necessarily always get along. And so you want to bring that in. And it's hard to build trust and share all that stuff. And it takes time to where you can't say, hey, so we just met five minutes ago. So tell me all the drama and problems with your family. Yeah. yeah. Trust Jenny. I got it. You know, I'm I'm trustworthy. Uh, So tell me about that, right? It's going to take time. But yeah, I think the idea of there's going to be some sort of triggering event. And a lot of times people might be told like, yeah, my parents told me or a friend told me or someone told me, you need to get a state plan. You don't have a state plan because they might be talking at work or out with friends like, oh, yeah, we just did this thing, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, get in the car. Do we need one of those things? Yeah. (laughs) What does that entail? So let's think about first time doing a state plan, kind of the, the initial needs, bare bones. What are the core tenants? And then why do those maybe matter, which is an easy question. And I know it's a more lengthy answer, but you can kind of high level and then we can dig in each one if you want. Yeah. Yeah. So when I think of a really basic estate plan, the most basic one, I think of primarily three documents, so to speak. So first one being kind of the healthcare one. So Who's going to navigate healthcare decisions if you can't? That's an appointment of healthcare representative or a healthcare power of attorney. Usually embedded in that document is a thing called advanced directives. What that basically is, the more specific medical decisions. So think like feeding tube, resuscitation, all those sort of things. That's usually embedded in one document. Sometimes attorneys will bust those up into a couple and neither way is better wrong. The second document is a financial power of attorney. So that one is giving someone the ability to step in and make financial and legal decisions for you if you're unable to. I think those two documents, I think as young adults specifically, they kind of skip past that. Their brains go straight to will, like a last will and testament. And those are so equally as important because I think a lot of times those get used for much later in life. So think cognitive impairment, whatever. But things happen every day to young adults. You get into a car accident. I don't know. Think of any kind of bad luck kind of thing. Something could happen to you. I mean, I just finished helping a young couple in their early 40s where the husband had a massive stroke. Otherwise, healthy guy would have never 
expected that to happen. So those kind of life altering events don't just happen when we're older, they happen when we're young too. So those two documents, super vital to be able to get someone to make those healthcare and financial decisions for us if something happens. And then the third document that I think of in a really basic estate plan is a last will and testament. So that's probably the most well-known document in my world. I have people all the time call my office and say, I just need to get a real basic will done. Wills come with a ton of misconceptions and I can dive into them if you want me to. Yeah, let's do it. You want to? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. I think the biggest misconception that I see, and I see it weekly, is that, well, two. One is that a lot of people don't understand the kind of asset a will controls. And and I'll get into that in a second. And then the second thing that people, they have misconceptions about is that wills avoid probate. They do not. So hear me loud and clear. Wills do not avoid probate. So actually, that one's probably easier to tackle. A will is a document that the words on the document mean nothing until you go through that probate process. A probate judge has to basically say that this will is a valid will and I effectively and officially appoint Joe Schmo to be my executor, personal representative, whatever. So that can't happen unless we go through the probate process. So probate happens when you have no will at all or just a will. Now back to the whole asset thing. I think a lot of people, they think that a will just swoops in when we pass away and sprinkles like magic pixie dust on everything and like takes care of everything. We should know better than that. (laughs) It's not that easy. In fact, when someone passes away, what my office does internally is we bring them into the office and we actually have kind of this big spreadsheet form that we use. And what we're doing is we're figuring out whose names are on assets and what beneficiaries are attached to them. And why we do that is because a last will and testament, the only kind of asset that a will controls are assets that have one name on them. So anything jointly owned, for example, that a will doesn't apply to. So think like a joint bank account between a husband and wife, for example. That's just going to go, it's going to legally default to the surviving owner at one of their passing. So wills only control assets that are one name and not or and have no beneficiaries attached. And so you think of brokerage accounts, retirement accounts, life insurance, those often have beneficiaries attached. Whether they're the right ones is a whole different can of worms. But especially when you sit down to come up with an estate plan and you talk about is a will enough, whatever. At the end of the day, depending on what you end up deciding, you really have to determine, okay, if I'm going to do this will, I've got to get these assets to support this document too. So a lot of times a married couple, for example, usually the will is not controlling assets at the first passing unless you have assets still individually owned, which I sometimes see. But that's just kind of the message to hear me sort of loud and clear with wills is it kind of makes my body shiver when someone says, I just really need a basic will. Okay, basic wills exist. And we need to talk about assets and how we're going to get those assets to support what we're trying to do in that will. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I think it does. Because one of the other questions I was going to ask was the idea of a kind of a will based plan, trust based. When do trusts come into play? Because I was asked non consensus views. And so I feel like if we had 10 estate planning attorneys and we asked, like, hey, so when does a trust come into play? You're going to get very different answers and people are going to have very strong opinions. So for your opinion on that, how would you address when it makes sense or maybe when it doesn't? Yeah. So there are two, generally speaking, types of trusts out there. And then there's subtypes of these. So part of the confusion and part of, I want to say, disagreement between different estate attorneys is because there's so many different types of trusts out there that sometimes we're talking about different trusts and we're disagreeing about different things. So Generally speaking, there are two types of trust. There's something called a testamentary trust, and the other type is called a living trust. A testamentary trust is a trust that's actually inside your last will and testament. A living trust are things sometimes you'll hear people talk about revocable living trusts or irrevocable trusts. Those are living trusts. So in a really basic will pack. So even like those documents I was just talking about, I have a lot of clients that will do those three documents and in their last will and testament, they will have me build in testamentary trusts, especially for say minor children, or if we have special needs beneficiaries, the thing you have to, and this is really getting into like the whole piece of does a trust make sense or not? Those are really important. And I have a lot of people that have me do those kind of trusts. The thing you have to know and remember is, again, if those kind of trusts inside your last will and testament, called testamentary trusts, to use those is going to require us to go through a court process called probate. And so if it's a goal to provide some specific distribution pattern for say minor kids or special needs or whatever reason. Maybe we want to set up trust for the kids and they're all hunky dory, but maybe we want to protect their inheritance because we're worried about divorce or something. Inside a last will and testament, those trusts are going to have to be created through the probate court process. And so sometimes I have clients that they'll say, okay, well, how do we do this? How do we do everything we're talking about, but not go through the probate court process. That's why people talk about living trusts. So that's really where the disagreement, I don't want to say disagreement because I feel, I think people just have their opinions. In it. My opinion is I don't really have one. I really don't have an opinion because it's not my plan. My job is to explain what the options are on the table and the client can pick from there. I do know attorneys that'll say every single person needs a revocable living trust. I don't necessarily agree with that, but again, that's my opinion. And I try to not insert my personal opinion on these sort of things. I'd rather the client understand what their options are and take the baton from there in choosing. But the reason people talk about those living trusts are because living trust, so long as assets support the living trust. And what I mean by that is you've got to transfer assets into the name of the trust or have the beneficiary of assets be the trust. So long as that's all done, then trusts avoid that probate court process. So it's kind of the win-win option because you get to really spell out like, okay, this is what I want to have happen if something happens to me 
and we get to avoid that probate court process. The thing, the kicker, I always tell people, if it sounds too good to be true in my world, it is. You're missing something. I've never come up with something that just sounds so good and there's not some catch. The kicker with that, people are like, well, why would I not do a revocable living trust then? It's because they're more expensive. And so they're more expensive when you do those kind of living trust plans. They are going to be more expensive than those kind of first three documents I talked about and even doing testamentary trust in the last will and testament. So sometimes people come to my table with sort of a number in mind of what they're willing to spend. And they're like, oh my gosh, yes, let's do this revocable living trust. And then they're like, oh, I wasn't really wanting to spend that much. So that's kind of the scoop of why people throw around this trust word. And from there, it's really dependent on the client situation as to one, what they want and two, what they're willing to spend, honestly. If you can improve the health of an animal, you do it, right? Of course, that's what makes veterinarian special. You're mission driven. My friends at LifeLearn are the exact same way. For over 25 years, they've been partnering with you and your peers, providing affordable, customizable online software solutions. These solutions save time, increase efficiency, and assist in managing all aspects of operations. Why? They want to help you improve your partnership with pet owners to improve pet health. LifeLearn has award-winning digital media solutions and are leading the pack as they've prioritized having extensive veterinary knowledge throughout their teams. That difference is seen, it's heard, and it's read by thousands of people across the country. Relax, grow, and thrive with LifeLearn. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer to see how LifeLearn can allow you to get back to what you do best. And why do so many people talk about wanting to avoid probate? Again, I've heard my own versions of this from various peers of yours, and I think probably you as well, but one that I've always heard is privacy. Is that the correct way to look at it? Or are there yeah. other things that would be more beneficial there? Yeah. So thank you for asking that because I usually go on that soapbox. But what you'll learn about me is I never come from a place of inserting my opinion. What I always tell people about probate is there's just three non-negotiables about it. Whether the client cares about them or not is up to them. And I kind of have a little bit of a bugaboo with people shouting from the rooftops about, oh my gosh, probate's your worst nightmare come true. And I do probate all the time and I don't even step foot in the courthouse. It's just a big old paperwork shuffle. It's a lot of work, but I just don't really like when people use kind of that fear tactic. So that's why I explained that there's three non-negotiables that you just have to be cool with. And if you're cool with them, then maybe a will is sufficient. But if any of them are going to keep you up at night, then maybe you do need to look at more planning. Privacy is one of those non-negotiables. So the three really quickly are privacy, time, and cost. So what people blab about with the whole privacy thing is basically Anytime you're going through the courthouse, anytime you're going through a court process, it's public record. It's no different than if you have too many drinks one night and you get busted for a DUI. All of that stuff, if there are charges and it's going through the court system, it is public record. And so your nosy neighbor, Nancy, could get on... Every state has this, I assume. Indiana, we definitely do. A website that's basically you can go to it, type in the person's name, 
they'll pop the estate up and you'll be able to see how much is going through the estate, who the beneficiaries are, that sort of thing. To which maybe it's just because I'm so sensitive to not inserting my opinion. I sometimes come to, or maybe it's because I'm a lawyer and I can always argue different sides. I feel like a lot of people don't even know where to go to look. (laughs) So while people say, oh, it's private, it's private, it's private. Sure. It's public record. That's a fact, period, end of story. Whether nosy neighbor Nancy is getting on there, maybe, but a lot of people don't know where to go to look, but it is public record. So you just have to kind of know that and be cool with it. I have some clients that are super duper private and they're like, I don't want nosy neighbor Nancy to be able to see anything. So that's really dependent on whether people care about that. Yeah. And a lot of people are just too busy. Am am I going to just spend the time to go dig into other people's stuff or do I have enough drama and things that I need to focus on in my life? But Again, there yeah. are people that I'm sure that brings them joy to go and find out information about other people they know. And oh my goodness, yeah, that's there. Yeah. yeah. So the other two. Yep. So we have privacy, which is the one that yep. I always think about. Yeah, yeah. I don't give that one much thought, just because what we just talked about. Like, I know where to go to look. I'm not even going to say the website because it's not even worth it. But I'm on that website all the time because I'm constantly in different court cases that I have to look up things. So I'm in it all the time, but a lot of people know where to go to look. Time and cost are the other ones. So time, what I mean when I say time is that probate doesn't happen overnight. Even thinking that is a total pipe dream. Even doing a trust, if you did a revocable living trust, that's still not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a shorter process than probate is. But What people say about kind of the time of probate is that it's just going to take some time. I set clients' expectation that it is minimally going to be a year. If it is somehow below a year, I just look super cool and super awesome. But most of the time, it's not less than a year. But it can be more. There's no maximum. The longest one I ever worked on, I think, was close to seven years. Crazy, right? Uh, Granted, there was some fighting in that one. And so... That's what really prolonged things, but there's no maximum. So long as we're keeping the court apprised, it could drag on for a long time. But in a really normal probate case, you're looking at probably a year, year and a half of just getting through the process. There's parts of the probate process that we cannot push the accelerator down on that. It kind of reminds me almost in a way of like a real estate closing where you do a whole bunch of stuff and then we wait. (laughs) and then we do a whole bunch of stuff again and then we wait so there's a lot of parts of the probate process that it's like a lot of hustle bustle and then we have to wait because there's certain periods of time that have to pass before we're allowed to go to the next step for example one of the parts of the probate process is what they call creditor claim period we have to give creditors three months to be able to make claims on the estate. Whether you have creditors or not, you may have zero. You may think there's no creditors out there and we still have to wait, give the creditors three months to make a claim on the estate. So that's what I mean, that it just takes some time. And so sometimes I hear clients say, especially young families, I think I hear them say often of, does that mean my assets are going to get frozen while we're getting through this process? And Initially, they probably are. They probably are going to get frozen for some temporary period of time at the beginning. We'll get them unfrozen. But at that very beginning stage, that may mean that someone needs to kind of foot the bill for the kiddos until we're able to get our hands on the money. So sometimes people have some 
there are legitimate concerns about the timing of things. But if we have people in our life that if that does happen, that, you know, that can kind of sort of foot that bill at the beginning, we can get them reimbursed and make them whole too. And then the cost factor, I actually think that's the one I give the most credit to, I guess, of why people kind of make probate sound like it's the worst thing ever. What I hilariously think is funny about probate and specifically lawyers, <laughs> it's my own profession. God love lawyers. Sometimes You can make fun me. of them. So yeah, Oh right? my like, gosh, they drive me nuts sometimes. They'll say, oh, the probate costs. Oh, the probate costs. What that means is the legal fees. The probate costs, I mean, to actually get a probate case started with the county here in Indiana is like a couple hundred bucks. And we may have a couple hundred bucks to publish the estate in a newspaper, just little things like that. But the probate costs that warrants the most concern are the legal fees. And don't let anyone tell you differently. Legal fees. So the kicker about this is, and it's another little bugaboo of mine that at least in Indiana, I don't know about others. And I know you have listeners in other states. And I was going to make that comment. You want to address that real quick. I know I'm interrupting you, but that's an important one. Yeah. Yeah. So I only practice in Indiana. I do find a lot of states are pretty similar in this whole estate world, are very similar. There are a couple states out there that are a little funky sometimes. California, Louisiana, and New York are the ones that immediately come to mind that they just have some funky things going on in their statutes. So this whole episode, I can only speak to Indiana, but a lot of states are pretty similar in this regard. But what I was going to say is that probate is one of the few fields in the law that to get a probate case started, your executor has to hire an attorney. And that's a bugaboo of mine because especially in those little all-American Pleasantville families, I'm like, come on, do they really need someone like me to get through that process? Indiana says yes. So the executor has to hire an attorney. And from there, in my weird brain, that's a textbook monopoly. Basically, the executors have to work with someone like me and my only competition are other estate attorneys that do this. And so, unfortunately, the legal fees for probate are not incredibly, I want to say, regulated. There's got to be reasonableness to it. So if someone says, your probate legal fees are a bazillion, bazillion dollars, unless you're Bill Gates or something, that may make sense. But most of the time, state attorneys that do probate will charge a percentage of the estate to go through the probate process. It is an attorney-specific number. So I always say there's got to be like the reasonableness sprinkled in there. So if an attorney computes, say, 2%, 3%, whatever their fee is, and they can't justify the work to be that, then that's a concern. I mean, that would be, if I was a client, that would be a concern of mine. So when I think of cost for probate, it's really the legal fees that are in my brain of what is that going to be? And oftentimes the probate legal fees usually end up being more than what a revocable living trust would have cost. So it's this weird teeter-totter of like, oh, do I spend more now to prevent that later versus do I spend 
less and maybe you have to spend more later. Yeah. So that's that final non-negotiable is, and it's a non-negotiable because they have to hire an attorney. And so this is going to be an issue. Yeah. And I love that it's pay now or pay later. You're going to pay one way or another. So just kind of go through. And I think what you mentioned before, the idea of discussing it and explaining it and then saying, which do you prefer versus trying to interject well, this is what Jenny always thinks you should do because yeah. this is the right way. This is what I do. And I'm sure you have clients asking, so Jenny, what do you do, right? Uh, do you get that question? Because I think it's oh, similar yeah. to financial planning, right? Where it's, well, what would you do? Well, the goal is not that you hire someone to run your life, right? You want them to say, okay, what's important to you? What does your family look like? Let me understand that. And this is what I think makes sense based on what you're telling me. But this is maybe the pothole that you should look out for that maybe would change my mind. But you should drive the decision. Don't ask me. Like, I don't want to make your life decisions. Well, I mean, it's the kind of the classic, the facts are different. If I'm sitting across from someone that has kids and my husband and I don't have kids. And my fact situation is potentially different than theirs, which would potentially warrant a different course of an appropriate plan. But yeah, I get that question all the time. <laughs> I'm always really hesitant to answer unless they really push me. But I usually say the caveat of my situation is different than yours. So don't let that go in one ear and out the other because it's really not that important. Yeah. So with, I guess, case study or stories or something that you feel like does a really good job at explaining the why for estate planning and whether it's, I guess the successful ones aren't as exciting, right? It's always yeah. the, <laughs> you talked about earlier, the fear. It's like, you don't necessarily want to do that. But is there any stories, examples, and whether it's something that maybe you've done or seen or your team seen, or it's a peer of yours that you've heard a story. I know you do some case studies, so I'm always curious to kind of hear a story that you have that drives home the value and why you want to do estate planning. Yeah. And that's, unfortunately, pretty much all of those examples are the client either failing to plan or they've slipped up. They've slipped up on something and so say like a beneficiary designation gone wrong kind of thing. On the beneficiary piece, sorry, I have no, a question now. No, I'm yeah. thinking the idea of if you're doing the trust-based plan and then making that a beneficiary and then the retirement account as the contingent, and there's some issues there at times if it's not specifically stated, can you touch on that at all or have any, do you have any thoughts on that or if it's not a great question? I know enough to be dangerous to ask it, but I don't know the answer. So, No, it's actually a really beautiful example of where my brain immediately went to when you said that is I firmly believe I can't do my job if I haven't had a conversation with you, their financial planner and or their CPA, depending on how involved those people are in their client situation. I think our roles are very intertwined. They are very different roles, but they are very, very intertwined. And so I think that's a perfect example of, I've had this conversation a lot with financial planners specifically because you guys approach things from a different perspective, right? And so one of those perspectives is watching out for, are we going to make this move and get hit in some sort of tax way we really didn't want to be hit with. So what I would say about that is I come to the table with, okay, so if we have these pre-tax retirement accounts and say we have a really specific distribution pattern, we want X at 18, Y at 25, Z at 30, whatever. 
So it's kind of a tug of war in my mind because the client's like, okay, well, we have this distribution pattern in our will or trust, honestly. And if we want that to govern, then like I said, we've got to get the assets to support that, right? Or the the assets set up to support that. Maybe it's a better way to say that. Specifically with retirement account, pre-tax retirement accounts, the issue there is depending on what we decide to make what we're trying to have happen, happen may make Uncle Sam really happy. And doing that sometimes, that's the tug of war that I'm kind of referring to where the financial planner's like, hey, John and Nancy, okay, you did this trust, you have this pre-tax retirement account. If we put the trust as, say, the contingent beneficiary, because we usually leave the spouses as primary, and then if we're going to do, if we're going to make the trust govern, then we'll put the trust as the contingent beneficiary. Where your guys' brain immediately goes is, oh my goodness, to get that in there is likely going to be a significant taxable event. And again, I kind of come from the place of really letting the client decide based on the facts at hand. So if they're, say, really heavy in retirement accounts, then maybe we put the kids as the human beneficiaries of those pre-tax retirement accounts to lessen the tax blow that that's going to potentially going to cause if we put the trust as the contingent. But we're going to sacrifice the distribution pattern in the plan in doing so. But what I always tell people is those pre-tax retirement accounts are not your only asset. And so maybe that distribution pattern is going to govern bank accounts, life insurance, brokerage, the house once it's sold, which is usually still a pretty significant chunk of change. I have clients fall on both sides, whether I'm willing to pay Uncle Sam more and put the trust as the contingent beneficiary, knowing that this distribution pattern will happen if something happens to me. Conversely, I've had clients say, okay, let's set the humans up as contingent beneficiaries on the pre-tax retirement accounts and let everything else fall to the trust. Again, it's kind of your classic, I mean, nothing in our worlds, right? Or like a one size fits all. We all know that. And so with those pre-tax accounts, that's how I approach the conversation of, okay, I actually save the retirement accounts towards the end because we do the funding process in-house. So we help the client get your assets where they need to be for the trust to actually work. And I save the retirement accounts for the very end of the conversation because I know it's going to be more lengthy than all the other assets. Does that answer your question? It does. And I always pride myself in this podcast is trying to ask questions and then shut the hell up and let guests talk. And then I was okay. like, oh, here's a question. They're like, no, 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 I'm going to interrupt you. Don't answer that one. Answer this other yeah. question. And I was like, oh, no. my brain. So yeah. yeah, it answers the question. I think that's helpful. And I think the ultimate takeaway for a listener is it's nuanced. And there's a reason why there's professionals out there that kind of go through this. And going back to the state by state kind of ruling, it is important. There are nuances, but a lot of the estate plan, as you mentioned, which is why I wanted to have this conversation, is pretty universal. A lot of these kind of big picture topics are going to be applicable across the country. But sure. with that, back to if you could still remember, since I interrupted you, the case, like a case study or a, an example of estate planning either that's done really well or that's been filled with a little bit more drama than what people wanted. Oh my goodness. I have such good case studies for all. 
one that I'm thinking of that's like glass half full positive. I think of cases where I've had beneficiaries that are battling very personal issues, think addictions, think whatever the case may be, and really setting clients' plans up. in Because I think what breaks my heart in those kind of situations is oftentimes the client thinks that they cannot leave money and inheritance to people navigating those sort of issues. And that's just not the case. It's going to require a lot of conversation and it's not going to be the most fun in the world, but I've had so many cases where it's kind of like you're happily ever after sort of situations of we have sort of this elephant in the room conversation we need to have and things play out exactly how we talked about, whether it's a monthly stipend or a quarterly stipend for those kind of people so that they don't get a big inheritance. And big is such a general word. People think big in different ways, but so that those kind of individuals, those kind of beneficiaries don't have this big money drop on them that could fuel whatever they're personally navigating. So I think of those sort of situations and then the bad case studies, those are far more juicy, right? Those are all my cautionary tales I talk about on my podcast that I never have a shortage of. I think a lot of people especially in Indiana, I think our little state gets catches a lot of flat because we're flyover country and it's just kind of boring here. But there's so much craziness that happens here. I mean, I've worked on cases where someone's murdered someone and you cannot inherit from someone you've murdered. So that was a wild, wild case. That was maybe seven or so years ago. But I think the more everyday I don't like the word fail. I don't like to use it, but it's the only word that's come into my morning brain. The kind of failures of estate planning. I think they're often beneficiary designations that have gone wrong. I've seen a lot of accounts go to ex-spouses. I've seen accounts go to parents inadvertently or maybe intentionally over kids and I've seen those parents not share it and they just spend it. And so it's such a testament to honestly working with people like you to make sure. I think people really fail to realize how important keeping up with those beneficiary designations are and what they are ultimately going to have happen if we list a beneficiary, what the outcome of that is. It seems so elementary, but it must not be if I see so many people mess up on it. Then maybe those people don't have people like you and maybe that's the issue, but that's a really big thing. I, see. I mean, of course, the other big one is people not doing a plan at all. There's this whole chunk of law and it's called the intestacy rules. Really fancy name for someone passing away without any kind of estate plan. And what's funny about those is they're not intuitive is the best word I can come up with that people all the time will say, oh, everything will just go to my spouse. I'll just go to my kids after that. But in Indiana, for example, without a will, any assets that are governed by someone's estate when they don't have a will, if it's like a, call it a married couple with kids in that kind of situation, not all of it goes to your spouse. There's all these little weird nuances, but if it's your first spouse and that spouse has your blood children, actually only half 
goes to a spouse and half goes to kids. While most people would think, oh, everything just goes to my spouse. It's like, no, actually it doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. So I've seen that go sideways where kids have had to disclaim their interest in like a house so that their mom, dad, whoever can maintain ownership of the house. So it's just little slip ups like that. It's really, if I categorize them, it's failure to plan and failure to keep assets updated and those beneficiary designations specifically. What haven't I asked about that you think is important for people to understand? And if we've covered a good chunk of it, that's great. But I always ask this when there's professionals that I know, know a heck of a lot more about a topic than I do. So actually, I'm glad you asked that because it triggered another thought that I very quickly kind of glazed over it a few minutes ago, but it's a misstep I see a lot of clients make. And I don't know if it's a client's misunderstanding and or if their attorney just kind of failed to really emphasize the importance of this. But when I glazed over talking about funding the trust, so that is really important with those living trusts, so revocable, irrevocable, that sort of thing. The amount of prospects, and they're not clients yet because I would have funded their trust. The amount of prospects I see that in their kind of initial client meeting, that they're coming to me and saying, Jenny, I need to update, I need to revise, whatever. And hey, I have this existing revocable living trust. My brain immediately goes to what the heck is in the name of this revocable living trust. The amount of prospects I see that have a trust and that there's nothing in it, no assets in it at all, is really concerning. And like I said, I don't know if the attorney is not really emphasizing the importance of making sure your assets get inside the trust or if the clients just don't understand or whatever. But something I just thought of when you said that was if any of your listeners have a trust, so they've taken the initiative to do an estate plan and you haven't proactively made sure that your assets are either owned by that trust or the beneficiary, depending on what we want to happen with that, just make sure your assets are set up in a way to support that trust. Because otherwise you paid for a trust that's not probably going to work. It's a huge thing I see all the time. That's great. And I should have prompted you on this earlier, but I'll just kind of ninja launch it on you, which is I always let guests ask me a question at the end as we kind of conclude, because sometimes it's an interesting way to just bounce around a different topic. So it can be estate planning, it can be completely off in left field. I've had questions around tattoos, Harry Potter characters, very serious stuff about family. So you can take it any way that you want if there's any question that you want to ask because it's just been me asking questions. So anything top of mind? Yeah. Can I ask two? Yeah, sure. There's no rules here. Okay. My first question, do I want to start with the personal one or the professional one? Which one do we want to go with first? Either one, whatever you want to know. Let's do the professional one. What frustrates you the most working with estate attorneys? It's probably a communication thing that you talked about earlier. As long as everyone's on the same page, I think anytime, whether it's estate planning, attorney, CPA, it's like the ones that do a good job at making sure everyone knows what's going on or saying, hey, we can do a joint meeting if we need to. We always will extend that. But there's others that are like, nope, that's my thing. You're not allowed in here. And I'm like, well, that seems strange if we're trying to help said client with whatever that is going on. Why wouldn't we want to all be in the loop on that? Because I think it just is rife with errors if you don't communicate well. So 
that's kind of a boring one, but it's probably also not shocking. Have you actually had someone say you're not allowed in the room? It was a CPA. Oh, okay. Well, it's still not any better, but. <laughs> Which is strange. But anyways, it was kind of like, hey, we could do a, a joint conversation. It was kind of like, no, we don't really do that. I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Like, Whatever. Okay. I'm a big fan of collaboration. I mean, it's impossible to be able to appropriately help our client without each other. Okay. My other question is, what are you single-handedly the most proud of? Whether it's work, whether it's personal, whether it's whatever. That's a really good question. I tried. (laughs) And what's funny is I'm sure listeners are like, oh, he's probably been asked these before. (laughs) No, 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 no. Neither one. Um, I get asked a lot about like, oh, how did you decide to go into veterinary medicine? This is just me stalling to think of a good answer. (laughs) I don't know. I It's probably just because it was this morning and helping the boys get around and ready. Always wanted to be a dad. And this is a weird thing that I don't think I've ever shared on here. So I had three brothers. We're the only ones that will have our last name, right? Both of my brothers probably won't have kids. So I have two boys. They will be the only ones that keep the Douglas name moving forward. And I remember talking to my wife when you're dating and going through things and talking about like those big life things, right? Yeah. It was important to me. Like, I wanted to have a son and I've been blessed. God's blessed me with two kids. And to me, that's super exciting. And if I had my way, we would have more kids. But my wife's like, nah, <laughs> we're done. So I'm holding out for that. And I always make yeah. jokes, but I think we're done it too. But I would say to me, that is one thing that, yeah, just really, really blessed. And people have kids and we didn't know what the heck we're doing with the first one. And we're still learning on the second one. But it's been really fun to watch them grow up. And I'm, I'm extremely proud of that. So part of that goes to my wife. It's not just me doing things. She does a lot. So yeah, I love that. I love yeah, that. So I think going back to estate planning and thinking about making the impact of a family and changing things. My grandfather, who has passed two years ago now, had a really good reputation in the family that we came from. You talked about Smallville, Indiana, right? Farmed, bought farmland, was very generous with his time, helped people out behind the scenes that no one would ever know. When he passed, there was a lot of people that just made comments and I don't live there anymore. But hey, when I was struggling with XYZ, my grandpa helped make this happen or just gave us never want anything in return. And it was very generous, very blessed from that standpoint, but he worked really hard to get to where he was, but was very generous. And I think that's something that how do you perpetuate that kind of legacy from a family perspective into the future? And that's, yeah, so... That's the way that I think about it. I actually, that totally reminds me and your listeners can totally steal this idea. So the lovely thing about working with an attorney that just does my field, the annoying thing about the legal field is that we can technically practice anything we want. We choose if we want to practice in specific spaces. So I choose to practice only in this estate space. And what I love so much about it is really molding someone's goals, values, whatever words you want to add to someone's plan. And you just saying that totally reminded me of a client that kudos to them. I use this idea all the time for other clients that they came to the table. We were talking about basically if something happened to them, they didn't want their estate plan just to drop on these kids. And then the kids be like, well, heck yeah, I'm just going to quit my job for a few years and just live this cool life. So what they did in their estate plan is when they pass away, so their kids are inheriting trusts, which is very common, even with normal estate values. People think that this only gets done with people a lot of money, and that's not the case at all. So their kids inherit trusts, and who's in charge of these kids' trusts, what ends up, what the trust says has to happen 
is the child has to turn in their W-2 to the trustee and the trustee will match it. So it promotes the kids if they choose to work at a field or whatever that's going to be minimum wage, well, they're going to get their trust money much slower. And if this child chooses to become a vet, then maybe they'll get it a little quicker. I still love that idea of really combating that idea of being trust babies. It's such a stereotype out there. I love it so much because it really promotes like go work and the harder you work and the more money you make, you'll get this trust faster. (laughs) It's almost like the idea of like, hey, if you save and you put money in your piggy bank, like we're going to match it as a little kid. And like you see like, oh, it's like a little 401k match. And the one thing that I think of, and I can hear people thinking, well, what if they want to go do a career that doesn't pay as much and someone else is, and again, nothing's perfect, right? There's always trade-offs, but it's trying to make sure that someone doesn't sit back and say, hey, I'm going to inherit all this money. Because the idea of the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves is real. I'm sure you see that too. First generation makes it, second generation kind of enjoys it, third generation kind of loses it from that standpoint. I might have butchered it a little bit. But the idea being by the third generation, they forget some of the values. Again, going back to what I talked about before with my grandfather, it's like, I don't want to forget the blue collar farming, hard work matters type of thing, even though that's so far from what I do from a day-to-day perspective. But it's like, how do you bring those values into what we do? And the way that my son is raised, he's not getting raised in a hog farm like I did. So like, it's just a different way that you see stuff. It's like, how do I make sure that he wants to continue or they both want to right, work hard in the future? So anyways, it's interesting. There's this idea of family governance, right? The idea of how do you instill the money values, the personal values, the religious values a lot of times for people. This is what's important to us. And uh, how do we kind of move that forward? So yeah, basically you can do anything you want and an estate plan. You just have to come up with what you want. And that's the hardest part, honestly. You know, I always tell people, I'm like, I wish I could give people restrictions. Like you cannot do X, you cannot do Y, and you cannot do Z, but there really aren't. And so basically whatever someone wants to have happen, I can make happen. And that just reminded me of something kind of as we wrap up, I wanted to mention that it made me think of this earlier when I was saying like practice in Indiana, I belong to some really awesome national organizations. So if anyone ever needs a solid referral, the national organizations, they're national, but they're very small. And so I know pretty much everyone in these organizations, I've personally worked with them. So if any of your listeners ever need a really solid out-of-state referral, I should be able to provide one happily. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And just within veterinary medicine, a lot of times you'll see people that will move, right? So different state, different things, and you want to make some updates and adjustments. And sometimes like, well, I'm not from here. Yeah. Who do I go to? So that's perfect and super helpful. As we wrap up though, for those in Indiana, A, they should reach out to you if they need that stuff. But where would you send people to either learn more? The podcast is on all platforms, right? Apple, Spotify, all the good ones, right? All, yep. There's yep. other good ones too, not just those. Yeah. So those are the two biggest ones. When I look at who listens, yeah. it's like, it's 90% here. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, where just in general for people to connect with you and you're on LinkedIn, Twitter, all those yep. spots. All those things. Our website, our, we have a really solid website. A lot of lawyers don't, uh, but we have a really solid website. It has a lot of good information, even just like really basic. What is this? What is that kind of thing? It's indianaestateelderlaw.com. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of being a resource for people. I don't do hourly work. So my go-to line is always 
you're only going to be paying me when you know you're going to be paying me. So if I can be a resource for any of your listeners, feel free to have them reach out. You can reach out through the website and they'll get it over to me. But yeah, that's how you reach out. Perfect. Thank you for the time this morning. This was great. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And it's already been an hour. So hopefully I I didn't blab too much. (laughs) That's perfect. All right. So there are a lot of great job postings that I want to get to. And so we're going to start off with Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. No weekends, Monday to Friday, eight to five, no on-call or emergencies. It's appointment only here. Currently a two and a half doctor practice, new owner in 2021, bringing some fresh life into the hospital. The new owner had been there for six years prior working, so definitely understands the team, the processes in the community. Lots of investment in people and new equipment. ProSal is the pay structure. Far too many benefits for me to list. Email BaysideVet251 at Yahoo or call 850-864-1857. Join a thriving, growing, small animal practice in Vermont on the Quebec border. Full-time ideal. Part-time is considered. The idea is to start with yes with the team, patients and clients in outdoor women's paradise while uh, being able to practice high-quality medicine. Compensation is write your own structure within production capabilities. Literally, it is the owner wants to find the right person and is happy to negotiate, chat through, and find the right fit. If you want autonomy and a boss that enjoys teaching, reach out to Newport Veterinary Hospital. You can email newportveterinaryhospital at gmail.com. North Central Indiana, looking for an oasis in the chaos. Who isn't, right? Come join the amazing team at Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. They strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care. They utilize the support staff efficiently so that the doctor is available to practice medicine and do what you're trained to do in less time and paperwork, which is great. Lots of investment in new equipment and technology to support you full-time or part-time available. Small animal and exotics are both seen there. So no ER, no on-call, no weekends, competitive salary with sign-on bonus offered, and far too many benefits to list. Go to Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. So type that in and you'll find the job posting there. Last but not least, join Watertown Animal Hospital, personable, small animal veterinarian wanted for well-established current five-doctor mixed animal practice in northern New York, which is an outdoors person's paradise. Again, two of those. So if you like the outdoors, you can look at Vermont or New York. They have plenty of support staff with six CSRs, six licensed technicians, four animal caretakers, two technical assistants, hospital associate, or sorry, hospital assistant, a practice manager, and a bookkeeper. Focuses on mentorship and investment on the people and the technology. That's been a strategic initiative by the leadership team. No on call, a 24-hour ER less than an hour away. Salary based on experience, but no less than 95,000. Can be straight salary, pro-sal considered. Want to discuss that with the right person. Tons of benefits. Again, too much to list. Please reach out to watertownpetcare.com for that option as well. So again, if you find a role or a job or talk to anyone and it helps you in any way, I would love to hear that feedback. So please reach out. Let me know what you're able to do. And I will continue to post these. So if you are an owner, reach out to me, let me know. And we'll go from there. And until I hit a capacity of I can't keep recording these, I want to let people know who are high quality owners around the country looking for great help. So with that, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should talk to your professional team before implementing anything. If you want or need financial advice, my day job on Not Podcasting is helping veterinarians grow their net worth. Our team is taking new clients and we are ready to talk to you at any stage of life. Come as you are. 
I always say, bring the mess, right? Like if things are unorganized, that's okay. There's no prerequisites to become a client. Isaiah Douglas is a partner at Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is a registered investment advisor registered with the SEC. The biggest compliment you can give me in the podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found and Apple Podcast is the platform that is predominantly used for people listening to the show. If you have three minutes, love the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. It helps more people find the show. Also, the new YouTube channel is up and I'd love to have you subscribe. Vainly, I want 100 subscribers at least. Lots more, obviously, right? But I get a vanity URL if we get to 100. That would be great. It makes it easier to find the YouTube channel as well. For all of today's links information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe to your favorite podcasting platform. It'll be a link to that YouTube channel I just talked about. You won't miss any other episodes, whether you list on Spotify, whether you have some other ancillary podcast platform please like, subscribe, all that stuff. It certainly does help. I appreciate it. Finally, if you want more information, insights, want your voice to be heard, want to share ideas for content, say, hey, Isaiah, I want you to have this guest. I want you to talk about this topic. Go over to the Facebook group. So you can search for the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom about your host, click on the Facebook icon, and that'll get you in the group. But thank you so much for listening. It means a lot to me to be able to see the podcast grow and continue to impact people. So with that, until next time, we'll chat soon.